Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Jamin, uh, one of the elders here at Christ City, and I am very happy to be with you this morning. We are going to be reading from the book of Matthew, the Beatitudes, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 12. And uh, we have Bibles at the end of the aisles, light blue Bibles are some of them, the other ones are white. So you're welcome to grab one of those if you don't have one and you can take it with you on your way out. Has everybody got a chance to flip there? If you do, say amen if you're there. All right. So let's read from Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 12, the Beatitudes. Before we do that, let's all stand together for the reading of the word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Let me pray for our time in the word. Lord, I ask that you would uh, soften our hearts, you would open our minds, that you would bless the meditations of my heart and the words that I speak this morning, uh, that we would find uh, in this time that we would know you more and we'd be compelled to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, we have been in a series on the Beatitudes, this passage that we just read, these blessings that Jesus gives uh, as he sits and teaches on the side of a mountain. And in these blessings, we find uh, some things that are counterintuitive, that are opposite of how we might want to think the world works and the way that we look at the world. In fact, this passage, these Beatitudes, are one of the most quoted pieces of religious literature in human history. But even though that's the case, it is one of the most hotly disputed in terms of what exactly does Jesus mean? So, for example, Martin Luther, who uh, was, was one of the greatest instigators of the Protestant Reformation. This, this first part, there'll be a little bit of uh, churchy stuff in here, but I'm, I'm going to bring it down to 
to the, to the level that we all want to hear eventually. So some, for some of the churchy people, I'm, I got to give them this part, right? That, that are the theologians and things like that, but I'm going to bring it to your neighborhood quicker than you think. All right. So Martin Luther, he, uh, he, he wrote these theses and, and uh, he was reacting to this idea that salvation had to be earned or that you could pay uh, a, a religious person, a clergy, uh, to get people out of a place called purgatory and these types. So he, in his reaction to that, in the, the pendulum swing, um, he looked at these beatitudes and he said, these are too lofty for anyone to attain to. So Jesus must have said them only for us to say, oh, I'm a sinner. I cannot live this way. I need grace. So that was Luther's interpretation, which influences a lot of the ways that those of us in this room look at scripture. Others, uh, early church fathers even, would look at this and say, these requirements are, are, are so lofty that we're going to look at it in terms of two sets of people. Uh, the, the highly religious and called people like the monks and the, the nuns and other religious clergy, and then all of us in here, the rest of the common folk. So for the nuns and the monks, they were supposed to aspire to meet all of the Beatitudes, and the rest of us, hey, just do what you can, okay? And on top of that, there were people like artists, like Tolstoy, who looked at the Beatitudes and he decided and not just the Beatitudes, but the whole entire sermon, he decided that Jesus meant every one of these things extremely literally for him to exercise in his own life. And so he actually sold all of his possessions and his estate, and he tried to keep the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount as literally as he could all on his own. The interesting thing about all of these responses to the Beatitudes is that Jesus doesn't command anything in them. He simply blesses people. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting that a man sitting on the side of a mountain in the midst of the poor common folk of the land could say, hey, if you are poor in spirit, you're blessed. If you're mourning, you're blessed. And it would cause such a reaction from people that they could not understand it in any other way than a command. What, what we're going to continue to find as we spend this time marinating on the words of Jesus here in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is kind of hard to, to pin down. And, and he's going to say things, and we're going to talk about things that you're going to say, but wait, no, there's an answer for that. It's easy. I can wrap it up with a bow. Why aren't you doing that? But if you think about it, why would God... Why would God fit into our worldview so neatly? We don't have a perfect Christian worldview. You just don't. 
I don't. We're influenced by all of these things in our culture, our, our national identity, our history, our social class, our race, all of these things. And so we're going to be wrestling with the blessing today that Jesus is giving. It's going to take some emotional and mental fortitude. One theologian said it this way, when, when he reads the Sermon on the Mount, he goes from nodding to wondering to disapproving. Hmm. So, the particular passage that we are looking at today is the sixth verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So far, Jesus said, blessed are, are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's good news. That's wonderful news. Blessed are those who mourn, for, for they will be comforted. Such good news to be a mourner, to be sad, and to find comfort. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Man, that's a great inheritance. I would love to be comforted. I would love to have that inheritance. I would love to have and possess this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God. But about this time, if I'm sitting and listening or standing and listening to Jesus' teachings, I'm beginning to wonder, what does this mean for me right now? I'm oppressed by this Roman government. I'm kicked to the side. I don't even have enough to feed my family. Because of my racial identity and religious identity, I'm marginalized and I'm persecuted in the right now. So there's a question arising, and Jesus addresses it here. He says that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied, for righteousness. And so that would be the logical question. What about this injustice that's causing me to be a mourner, that's causing me, that has caused me to be so poor in spirit? What are you going to do about that, if anything? Can you do anything about it? To hunger and thirst for something. To hunger and thirst for something that is not food and drink, that is a deep, visceral, inner desire. That's not just like, well, I would like for some of these things to happen. That's something on the deepest level that the hunger, hungriest you have ever been, imagine feeling that way about righteousness. Anybody ever heard of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Can we flip that up on the screen real quick? Maslow, he believed that we had to have our needs met in this certain order. And at the bottom was just food and shelter and these type of things. But when we look at this world, and even if you are ever, ever able to get underneath to the bottom of the deepest desires in your gut, not in your brain, in the depths of your inners, you might find this is not true of you, that we long for things beyond simply food and drink. 
That's all I wanted to say about Maslow. So we've got three questions that I want to address this morning. Three questions about this passage. The first is, what is righteousness? The second is, who hungers for it? And the third is, who satisfies that hunger and that thirst? So let's start with this question of righteousness because, um, and uh, I'm gonna dip back into, to, into churchy and theology, so stay with, me, uh, stay with me, I won't be there long. I've got five minutes for that on my notes right here, all right? But our, it, if you grew up in church, uh, pretty much any, any kind of church, you probably have a, a, a pretty narrow definition of righteousness. And it's actually probably not the definition Jesus is using here in this passage. His hearers would have known exactly what he was talking about, but the, those of us here hearing this today, 2,000 years later in an air-conditioned school building, might not make the same conclusion. So I want to talk about that just for a minute because what the typical Christian Protestant and maybe even some people who are looking over the fence at Christianity might think about when they think about righteousness is one thing, and that is uh, this idea of legally being made right with God. Justification is the churchy word for it, the theological term for it. So when we hear somebody like Paul in the New, New Testament say that uh, we have no righteousness of our own, that there is no one righteous, not one, that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about justification. But there are two other ways that are all over the Bible that are the most common ways that righteousness is referred to, and that is the moral and social aspects of righteousness. And so just to, instead of just me trying to explain those to you, I'm just going to give you a few examples from Scripture, uh, really quickly run through them, of these other uh, ways of thinking about righteousness. So they're going to be up on the screen here. So in 1 Samuel 24, this passage says, he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. That's a, that's a moral form of righteousness he's referring to. He's acting morally to someone who acted moral to him. Second Chronicles 12, 6, then the prince the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is righteous. So the Lord can't be justified uh, and be, be cleansed from his sins by the righteousness of Jesus, right? So we're calling God righteous. So that means it's a moral and social righteousness that God is acting out in the world. And then Psalm 37, 21, the wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. That's the social aspect, again, of righteousness. Giving to the needy, to the poor, to the downtrodden, to the widow and the orphan. Um, uh, Psalm 37, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. So those who act morally and socially righteous in the, in the world around them, that they find salvation, physical salvation from God. And I'm going to skip down because I thought this would get a little longer. So I'm going to skip down to Jesus in Matthew 5.20. Can you skip to that one? For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If that was justification, how would Jesus be asking their righteousness to exceed someone else's? 
It's not, it's moral and social. And then one of the ones that we're most familiar with thinking about, Romans 5, 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Speaking of Adam, when he ate the apple, disobeyed God. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's legal. That's the legal form of righteousness, being made right with God. So if you just checked your phone and you tuned out or you took a little nap, you can come back now, all right? So, we've got these three forms of righteousness. Uh, turn to your neighbor, tell your neighbor, which, which ones do you think Jesus is talking about in this passage? Just take a stab at it. Just tell your neighbor, which one? Legal, moral, or social? Which ones? It's an interactive session, people. All right. So... He's, he's talking about moral and social justice here. That's what he's talking about in this passage. And so uh, if you answered anything else other than that, you are wrong, and you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. All right, so we just needed to get that out of the way, that what, what is this righteousness? What Jesus is talking about is both how we interact in certain ways, like for example, it would be moral of me to not cheat on my wife. It would be a social type of, of righteousness for me to give part of my money to uh, support homeless ministries or jobs or other nonprofits, uh, things like that. So a couple, couple down-to-earth, just real quick examples of moral and uh, social righteousness. So we have these folks who are hungering. Who are these people? That's our second question. Who would hunger for this type of righteousness? Who would feel this elemental deep pain that could only be compared to not having eaten not having had enough to drink. Anybody ever been that hungry and you couldn't do anything about it in this room? You ever had to go a day without food or water? I'm not talking about fasting or dieting. I mean, you didn't have a choice. The people Jesus is talking to can relate to that feeling, to that need. I don't think that most of us in this room would probably say, if we were honest, that we hungered and thirsted after that type of righteousness, for, for socially, for things to be made right, for poverty to be alleviated, for, um, for people to be treated respectfully and equally regardless of gender, race, religion, or creed. We might want that to happen. We might have some type of desire. We might like it. But most of us have not lived the type of life that it would feel like it's eating us alive from the inside not to have that type of righteousness. The masses of human history, the masses of people in human history can relate to this. They can relate to this feeling. 
I have an idea as to why that's not true of most of us most of the time. And remember when we talked about how this is not a, a commandment that Jesus is giving right here? See, about right now, maybe you think I'm trying to make you feel like it's a commandment, but I'm not. It's not, you don't do anything to feel hungry, do you? If, if you just don't eat, you feel hungry, right? So I'm not commanding, I'm not telling you Jesus is commanding you to feel hungry or thirsty. I'm just talking about who he is most likely referencing here. So my idea about why we don't often feel this way or can't, don't find ourselves feeling that way is uh, rooted in politics. But guess what? I'm not going to talk about anybody who anybody voted for recently right now, but I wanted to give that dramatic pause because I'm in a church of predominantly white people, and I'm a dude with dreadlocks up here and brown skin talking. And so I just wanted to, to uh, mess, mess with y'all for a second, all right? He's <laughs> like, oh, here he goes. He can get on his political. No. I'm going to talk about the dude who wrote The Prince, Machiavelli. You ever, anybody ever heard of this book, Machiavelli? This dude, he, he was writing in the middle of the Renaissance period, and he was writing to other people who owned these small little areas of land. They were princes of these little cities and things like that. And he was teaching them about how to govern craftily and how to keep power, how to get power, and giving a lot of examples of doing those things. And in a lot of ways, he's, the, he's one of the fathers of modern-day democratic politics, and some would say uh, the father of uh, tyrannical politics. Um, and so I think he, gives, he can give us a, a quick clue as to why it's not exactly that we hunger for these things in some ways. So here's a quote from him. He says, uh, how we live is so different from how we ought to live that he who studies what ought to be done rather than what is done will learn the way to his downfall rather than to his preservation. I'm going to say it one more time, then I'm going to break it down in uh, regular old English. How we live is so different from how we ought to live that he who studies what ought to be done, so that would be the Bible, that would be one of the things what ought to be done, or any other sort of religious teaching that aspire to an ideal. He who studies that rather than what is done, will learn the way to his downfall rather than to his preservation. So when we look at, when we look at what Jesus is blessing, what Jesus is, is saying is a, a blessed state of being or who will inherit uh, the earth, those types of things. We look at Jesus's commandments, so many people have already come to the conclusion, that just ain't right, Jesus. Like, you're not living in the real world. This is not, that, you, have you not been around? Did you not see what happened the other day? Dude, somebody made you carry their pack for a mile and you're talking about all this stuff? We gotta talk about what, what it's really like. Look, I'm a follower of Jesus and everything, but they're cheating me on my taxes. I gotta do something about that. I gotta figure out some loopholes and I gotta make that work for me. You know, a friend of mine, uh, that I was talking to on the phone, he's not a, he's not a believer, and he said, it, he said it this way, we weren't talking about this directly, but he said, man, I hate it when people tell me to buy local. He said, I hate it, because 
We live in a capitalist society in which the bottom line is the most important thing. That's what, that's what this country's all about. It's about getting the best deal, paying people the least you can to get the most bang for your buck. And you're gonna tell me, some dude who makes $30,000 a year to buy local? Pff, get on with that stuff, man. <laughs> He's living in the real world. If you're not a Christian, I would highly advise you live your life like Machiavelli prescribes. I think it's a great idea, I really do. But if you believe that the kingdom of heaven is permeating the air around you, that Jesus is really blessing those he's talking about blessing right now, then we have to consider that there is indeed a different reality working in and among us right now. What Machiavelli's saying, what he's basically saying is, hey man, snitches get stitches. Hey, you want to try to live that way? You want to try to be all honest and righteous and all that? You're going to get something because that ain't the way the world works. You're going to get something you don't like. As a little girl I taught years ago said, Mr. Carter, you, you better go over there and tell them something they don't want to hear. <laughs> right? That's what's going to happen if you live the way Jesus prescribes in these passages. And so I think so often that hinders us, that type of mentality is, I gotta look out for me and my own. I can't live this way Jesus is talking about. I'll just ask for forgiveness later. But if there's anything we find Jesus drawing some really hard lines, he's so gracious in almost everything that he says, but if there's anything that he is drawing hard lines about, it's if you neglect the people that I am showing myself to care about, to, to treat with dignity and respect, hey, I might not recognize you. You might come up to me and say, man, I can, I can tell you the five points of Calvinism. I can say, I can backflip through John 3.16. And he might say, but there are hungry people over here. And there's thirsty people over here. And, 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 there's, and there's old people over here that ain't nobody looking out for. And you didn't pay any attention to them. They were hungry. And they were thirsty. And when you did not feed them, you did not feed me. That's what he said. I, I didn't, that's not what I'm saying. That's what he said. That scares me too. So who are these hungry and thirsty people? What's, a, what's an example that we find in Scripture that Jesus responds? Because you know what? In, in all these passages, and Jesus is saying he blesses these different kinds of people, all we got to do is read the rest of the Gospels and see him doing it. Even when he's tired, even when his disciples can't, can't get it straight, like just... Jesus, oh, which way do we go? You know, he's like, man, I got to watch out for these folks and I got to take care of all these hungry people and hurting people. So let's, let's look at a passage together where we see um, this idea of a, of a hungry person, hungry for righteousness. Uh, Mark 10, let's go to Mark 10. It's right after Matthew, it's the next book. 
Go to Mark 10, verse 46, where Jesus encounters a blind man. You see, it's so important that we, as Christians, that, that, we, that we think about and, and that we spend time considering what Jesus meant by righteousness. Because there's a lot of people turned off to the message that they are hearing about Christianity in this country right now. The message that Jesus, you need to believe in Jesus, believe that he died on the cross for your sins so you can get up out of here when it all goes to hell. A lot of people are really discouraged and, and um, angered by that message. In the same conversation with my friend I was telling you about earlier, he went to a funeral and there, was a, there were two people who got up to speak. One man who said, this is really hard. This, this was a, a murder of, a, of, a, of an angry ex-wife murdering um, her kids and uh, her ex-husband's new partner and their kid. And the first preacher got up and he said, uh, there are no words to describe this tragedy. Let me mourn with you. That's a paraphrase. The second guy got up and talked about hellfire and brimstone. And my friend said he went out of that church and all his friends feeling so angry that that's what that man took his time on stage at their friend's funeral to do. But when we look at the full picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do and the life that he lived, that's good evangelism right there. We talk about who is blessed and we can go and bless somebody. You can go right now out onto the street and you can bless a poor person. You can say, blessings be to you. The kingdom of God is near you. I can pull out my wallet. I can give them some money. I gave a guy my fries last night because uh, my wife's had to work so hard with the kids because I've been working out of town and preparing for preaching. So I went through the drive through and on the way out, I blessed a man with some French fries. And you can do that no matter how much money is in your bank account, because that's what God's kingdom is about. He doesn't run out of resources. You don't have to worry about what that person's going to be doing with the blessing you give them. You're not the king. You're just living in the kingdom. So let's, let's look at this passage. Mark 10, 46. <clears throat> and they came to Jericho, and he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So we got a, a, we got a dude who's totally down and out. Jesus is walking by in a huge entourage, huge crowd of people. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, <laughs> had a hard time with that, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. All right, so this dude, first of all, we learn in another account that he asked first, like, who is that going by? Because he can't see. And when he calls out to Jesus, he calls him what? Son of? That 
title is the title of the Messiah, of the Savior. This man who's blind on the side of the road, he is recognizing who Jesus is long before many of the people who don't have those deep hungers. He is hoping against hope. What we were talking about earlier, Machiavelli and his, his summation of how we should live, that is based in cynicism. When we refuse to hope any longer that we are nothing but orphans thrown onto a planet that's spun and we're acting on our own. Cynicism, the lack of hope, of belief that God can do what he says he will do, that Jesus meant that these people are actually and right now and forever blessed. But this blind man who has nothing to his name but the cloak on his back has enough hope to reach out and call this man the Messiah and ask him, please stop for me. In the midst of all these other important people with you, will you stop for me? I have hope. <clears throat> so he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And in 48, and many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. There comes that cynicism. Jesus does not have time for you. I wonder how many times do we believe the kingdom we got going ain't got time for certain people. If, if we were able to respond like Jesus does here, the United States really would be a Christian nation. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. In the midst of the crowd, verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. Oh, all of a sudden they changed their tune. All of a sudden, now that, now that Jesus has said something, they, they change what they say as well, what, what their perspective toward the blind man is. But this isn't faith here. This is ignorance. If they had known what Jesus was about, they would have brought the man to him. Do you recall the story, another place in the Gospels, where some men took the roof apart to get a crippled man to Jesus? They knew the hunger and the thirst. But these people, nah. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, well, Jesus called. Okay, yeah, come on. So, take heart, get up. He is calling you. In verse 50, it says, and throwing off his cloak, the one possession he had, he sprang up and came to Jesus, elbowing through the crowds to get to him. Or maybe they parted away, I don't know. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? So gracious. Giving the blind man a chance to even voice his own need, to bring that need up out of his guts. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This man was so hungry, there weren't enough people that could tell him to be quiet and shut up. And you're just a poor, poor blind man. 
Jesus shouldn't give you the time of the day. I'm certainly not going to give you the time of the day. The man had something deeper that could not be satiated, that could not be quenched. He had a hunger and a thirst for righteousness in his life that he knew somewhere inside of him, he knew it was supposed to be different. And so he reached out for Jesus. And in him he found not quite a full satisfaction, but maybe some relief. Maybe some relief for this present time to, to taste the kingdom. And Jesus said, hey, you're healed. Go your way. Where's the man go? Where'd he go? He followed Jesus. He didn't even stop to go back and get his one possession. I've never been blind. Not even for a moment. I take my sight for granted. This man doesn't. Reminds me of a story Mark told a few verses back about a rich young ruler who had a lot to lose. Jesus said, hey, sell your stuff and then come follow me. The man went away sad. He already had his sight. He already had his moral righteousness. He said he'd obeyed all those commandments, Jesus said. What a contrast between the full man and the hungry man that we see in Scripture. I'm not telling y'all to do anything right now. I'm just talking about Jesus and the blessings he's given to righteous people. I just want to keep making that clear. I'm just telling you about Jesus. Isn't Jesus attractive? Isn't he a wonderful Savior? That he would take the time when he was busy getting ready to go die on the cross for our sins to stop and heal a blind man. If he will take the time to do that, what does that mean for us? I won't be dying for anybody's sins anytime soon. I guess I got time. If Jesus had time, I got time too. So we were going to answer three questions today. We just answered the second one, who would hunger for this righteousness? The blind man's a great example. Can you think of somebody who you would or wouldn't interact with or see or know that might have those kind of deep hungers? That they would be so naive as to run and shout and throw off anything that held them back for even one second to get to that Jesus who brings that righteousness. Because that's, that's where we're headed now. Who satisfies this righteousness? And everybody said, everybody knows the answer. We're in church. Who satisfies that righteousness? Jesus satisfies the righteousness. I'm so glad that that's the case. He's the one who brings satisfaction to the hungry. We can bring relief, though. We, can, we can't bring renewal. God brings renewal but we can bring refreshment. We can't save, but we can point the way to the Savior. We can take the time to say, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Because I know the man who can satisfy that hunger and that thirst. Praise God for that. 
Have you ever had that type of confidence, that type of faith? Not just that if you say this prayer, when you die, I'll, I'll hang out with you then and we'll be in heaven and everything will be cool. But right now, the kingdom of heaven is right here with you and me. And when we share this box of french fries or this peanut butter and jelly sandwich together, the kingdom is blessing us in this moment. Somebody say amen, please. Somebody say amen to that. Come on. Preaching by myself. Jesus is our satisfaction in this. He is the one who establishes the kingdom. He is the one who makes sure that while we're bringing the relief, he's coming on home with that satisfaction. Every hungry person, every thirsty person, he says, is going to find that fulfillment, is going to find that satisfaction. So I pray that we, as we look at this blessing, as we look at Jesus saying, fortunate, happy, blessed, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we would understand, hey, this is, this is the kingdom of heaven he's talking about. What we, what we tell people we belong to. And that we would walk around with that faith and that belief that we can bring refreshment and we can point the way to the one who will ultimately satisfy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you aren't like us, that you are God all by yourself, and that you bring blessing where we couldn't possibly imagine blessing lies. That your care and concern for those who aren't like us, who don't have what we have, who don't look like we look, far outweighs even how much we love and care for our very own children. Lord, be gracious to us. Bless us, God, in being able to see and understand this kingdom, this kingdom of heaven that is so very different from any kingdoms or governments or organizations that we know. Let us be tools and instruments of love and refreshment. Give us hearts that are willing to receive what you would have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.